Welcome to the Snow Brains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge on to you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains. And when I was 23 years old, I moved to Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe, California. On my first day waiting an early morning KT22 line, I set my skis down to mark my spot on the fourth chair. About one minute later, a very famous pro skier walked up, yelled at me for not having my boots on when I put my skis down, a local rule it turned out, and proceeded to grab my skis and throw them out of line down on the cat track below. I calmly walked down, grabbed my skis, put them back in line, pulled my ski boots out of my backpack, put my boots on right there in line. Now, this big pro skier and I on the same chair. Awkward. Today's Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Grand Targi Resort, home to the best snow in Wyoming. Delivering an average of 500 inches of snow annually, you'll find uncrowded slopes and a unique Targi vibe served on the daily. My guest today is Dr. Russ Costa. Dr. Costa is a cognitive scientist, skier, and mountaineer who studies why people do dumb shit in the mountains. He's an expert on human attention and performance. He is interested in how distracted, fatigued, or otherwise impaired minds and brains perceive the world, particularly in high-risk, high-consequence environments, especially in the mountains and in avalanche terrain. Russ loves to chat about decision-making in avalanche terrain, in the mountains in general, and at high altitudes. Russ's research work utilizes a broad range of methodologies, including electroencephalography to applied behavior analysis in the natural environment. After two decades of conducting primarily laboratory-based theoretical work on cognition, Russ has moved parts of his research program outside. So now he's studying cognition and neuroscience in the mountains. His current work examines how hyperbaric hypoxia, a lack of oxygen, at high altitude affects human attention, decision-making, and error in the mountains. Russ currently teaches a broad slate of courses in the Honors College and in the Neuroscience and Psychology programs at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hello, Russ. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. When did you ski last? Yesterday. (laughs) Nice. How many days have you skied this year? Probably about 10-ish by now. Nice, man. Russ, you're a psychologist, and you often study the psychology of how people make decisions in the mountains and in avalanche terrain. So can you please describe to our audience exactly what you study, what you're most interested in, and what your passions are? For a long time, I've studied, I'd say, impaired brains, not necessarily with drugs and alcohol. In fact, I don't do any work with drugs and alcohol. It's more impaired in that distracted brain. So my dissertation work was on task switching and then a lot of multitasking work. And more and more that has led, thinking about my own bad decisions in the mountains, to an interest in fatigue and how fatigue brains are impaired, actually, in a lot of ways that we might expect in a drug or alcohol-impaired brain. Um, at least ah. behaviorally, you see some of the same things. And so, yeah, studying rushed brains, distracted brains, fatigued brains is what I do. 
for a while in laboratories, but uh, the last few years I've been working in the mountains because um, these qualities, I think, underlie a lot of mountain accidents we see. So that's where my research has taken me. What I do for a living is I'm an associate professor of honors and neuroscience at Westminster College in, in Salt Lake City here. And uh, so uh, the indoor part of my job involves a lot of teaching, particularly uh, neuroscience and also interdisciplinary honors seminars there. Um, But I I really like that environment because I've learned to teach to not just neuroscience majors, but to students from all academic backgrounds. And so it gave me that breath initially. And then more and more, I've been speaking to public audiences um, at, at snow and avalanche workshops or other educational events. And I really like communicating that scientific information to general audiences in, in ways that I think maybe one of the biggest failings of science is that it's not, it hasn't been excellent at necessarily communicating itself to the public outside of itself. Scientists are trained to write journal articles to be read by scientists studying what they do. We don't read medical journals. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and so I think um, it's been really interesting to bring my work in neuroscience because I've written papers for those journals and and can read those journals. And and it's part of my training uh, to particularly do electroencephalography work. And so I study uh, brainwaves, the electrical activity produced by brains and I can read those papers, but I really like communicating that for particularly how it applies in the mountains. I've been throughout my career in the mountains, been impacted by many accidents, um, including avalanche and otherwise. And what can we do to, to minimize them? I don't think there's ever going to be a way to eliminate all accidents. Mountains are dangerous places and there's just objective hazard we can never zero out. But I I do think we can minimize accidents and and reduce them. And so kind of applying the science to this field has been an exciting path I've been on for the last six or eight years. I love it. And when I talked to you earlier, you said uh, a lot of what I study is why people do dumb shit in the mountains. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's my uh, uh, the fast intro. I gave you the longer one, but that's good. That's your tagline now. Yeah, it's it's. I guess I've studied why people do dumb shit for a long time, but it's been now in the mountains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's evolving. I love that. Well, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in the mountains? So, I mean, the mountains have been a pull factor to move me a lot of uh, where I've gone and, and throughout my life. I grew up in just south of Boston, between Boston and Providence, and but thankfully, a family would take us uh, to the mountains uh, um, occasionally for camping and skiing and such. And do my undergraduate work in Vermont at Middlebury College, and uh, sort of was drawn to the mountains from to get out of the, the suburbs of Boston at the time. So I found myself right out of college, moving to Utah, moving to Alta, um, again pulled toward toward bigger mountains. Yes, and uh, started skiing in the in the backcountry that first winter. Not a lot. I was at that point sort of 90, 99% resort skier, but bought a, uh, my first transceiver and bought first set of pair of skins and started learning it. And so, and then more and more, yeah, I've been just skiing in the mountains and uh, mountaineering. And, and my research has taken me to even bigger mountains now, trying to do high altitude research work. We can talk about that later. And it's been great. Um, well, 
That is great. That's cool. You know, I graduated college in 2001. So that's when I started my mountain education. So we're probably about the same age around 43 years old. So that's great. I like that. And how many days do you ski per year with, with all your academic work? How many days are you able to get in a year? It varies quite a bit. It's hard to uh, uh, average it out. I've generally said 50 because it's easy math. And, and that's it, by the way, a heuristic. We'll talk about that later. We tend to just think of the easiest solution. So yeah. 20 years times 50, I can roughly estimate a thousand backcountry yeah. days. Now that I'm older, it's easier to get injured. And those six week injuries have turned into six month injuries. Uh, and so depending on injury and work schedule has varied a lot throughout my career, but I'd like to say 50, 50 plus. So that's great. Good years, maybe twice that much, but when I'm injuring stuff, a lot less. <laughs> yeah. Well, and considering what you do for a living, that's very impressive. So let's start with something you study and speak to a lot and that's decision fatigue. So, so yeah, to start this off, please tell us what is decision fatigue? So decision fatigue is a theory that's come out of psychology, I think specifically social psychology, but been embraced by um, a broader audience in the field. And it's the theory that as we make more and more decisions, the quality of those decisions deteriorates over uh -huh. a day. It's an interesting theory because it, it suggests that decision-making is hard. And, and we know that we're working hard when we're on our 10th lap of the day or when our partners are moving at a really quick pace because we can feel that fatigue in our lungs or in our legs. We're not as good at feeling that mental fatigue, but research work has shown that that decision quality does deteriorate. And um, it's something that I think it's, it's very dangerous to backcountry travelers because we're unaware of of, of that fatigue setting in. Mallory, I think, has said it's hard for the brain, the stupid brain to know it's being stupid because the, the apparatus we have for detecting our being stupid is impaired. It's also being stupid. So how would you say that decision fatigue affects skiers and riders when they're in avalanche terrain? Uh, I think it basically means that our, our, our decision-making probably deteriorates over the course of a day. And we're sharper decision makers and making better decisions on that first lap than as opposed to the eighth. And right. I think that's, it's counteracts other factors that as we ski as particularly for making the same lap on the same slope uh, more and more often, that's building, um, building confidence in that slope, rightfully or wrongfully, it depends on right. whether it's a persistent weak layer or not. Right. Um, and so as our confidence is increasing, our decision, uh, our decision ability is decreasing. Our decision quality is decreasing, and that's a dangerous pattern to exist in the mountains. To almost every touring party out there, and it's something I've probably done many times without really noticing. That is a fierce juxtaposition of things. You're, you're, because it is true. You've been out there. Oh, we skied a couple runs. No avalanches happen. I haven't seen any problems. And so your confidence is building. And but if you're getting tired, which you are in the backcountry, because every time you hike up, it's a long hike. So your confidence is building, but your decision making is getting worse, which okay. which makes me think the next question is kind of how often do you think decision fatigue is to blame in mountain accidents and avalanche accidents? I don't know about decision fatigue specifically, mm -hmm. but certainly I think decision making errors exist in almost all of them. I think that's right. So every accident to some level involves a decision to go out that day. But from there, we can look at chains of errors that 
it can get deteriorate over time that the decisions made throughout the day. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it brings me to, uh, you know, one of my next points is, or points is uh, I have a quick list here of four critical elements that I'm guessing decision fatigue affects in the mountains. And it's uh, deciphering slope angle, uphill route selection, choosing what to ski and ride uh, and red flags. So I'm curious what you to hear your perspective on how you think decision fatigue and decisions affect all these attributes. Yeah, I, one of the problems I think or limitations so far in how uh, psychology work has been applied in the in the snow and avalanche world has been it jumped right it jumped right to decision making, and I'm not a decision making researcher actually I've I've came from background of studying perception attention and, and particularly attention and, and task switching and multitasking and those kind of brains. But everyone wanted to know about decision making because that seemed to be the point where the errors were made. Right. But any any decision we make involves hundreds or thousands of inputs that go into that decision, Mm -hmm. including perception at the very basic and then sort of what we perceive about the environment, how we how we process that perception, let's say, and then what we choose to attend to in the environment. Memory plays a role, what we remember from and all these factors lead into our decisions, in addition to any social factors of who we want to impress and, and, and how <laughs> tempting and how tempting the powder looks and all that. Oh, yeah. But some of those. And so we talk about decision making. We're kind of already talking at a level of, of hundreds of other things going on. And I've been interested in moving the conversation to a, a lower level, in particular for something like perception. Right. How do we see the world differently, depending on how tired we are? And actually research by uh, colleagues at the U who've chatted about a lot with a lot lately have suggested this is exactly what happens, that as we get more and more tired, distances look longer, ah. slopes can look steeper, et cetera, et cetera. And it changes our perce- the way we perceive the world. And so fatigue, not even psychological fatigue that comes with making many, many, many decisions, but just simple physical fatigue impacts the way we see the world. And if those perceptions are forming the very basis of our decisions in the mountains, and we can show they're biased, it it opens up a whole chain to look at and how we get to erroneous decisions in in avalanche terrain, other high-risk environments. Well, and that's fascinating. If you're saying as we get more tired, we might see distances as longer and slopes as steeper. And I'm almost kind of hoping on, on a basic level that maybe that helps us make more conservative decisions when we are tired, do you ever see anything around that? Yeah, well, that's probably the reason they evolved in our species, right? I mean, yeah, because I feel like I do that. I'm like, hey, I'd be like, let's do another lab. It's like, man, I am tired. I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> that looks hard. And although I said earlier, you know, it's hard for a tired brain to realize, recognize it's become tired. Right. And the brain has no pain sensors, right? So you can't have a brain that actually hurts. <laughs> Which is a good <laughs> thing. Sounds good to me. <laughs> but maybe tired lungs or tired legs save us from making dumb decisions. And it's kind of a nice warning factor. And, you know, when you start to get tired, realize that it's just not your legs hurting. It's it's your brain's probably also not doing as good as your legs were a few laps ago. <laughs> and, and do you think there's a one-to-one correlation there that it, does a tired body mean a tired brain? So if my, if I get really tired, can I go, I can you know be nice to say it. Well, my brain is probably tired here too, which means my decisions are going to be great. I should probably back off. 
Should. I don't think it's a one-to-one correspondence. And I, one thing I'm really interested in, in research, although I don't have any definitive results I can really talk about, and it's a tough problem to study, is, is how expert brains might tire less quickly than a novice brain. Oh, interesting. Part of this is just simply back to our concept of decision fatigue, not even that experts make better decisions than novices, but that experts use less mental energy to make decisions than novices do. And right. that goes from everything from perceiving the world to, to attention to, to recalling memories about that. And there's a lot of evidence that actually not only do expert decisions get faster and more accurate, and this is from cognitive neuroscience laboratories, they also show less activity in parts of the cortex, particularly the frontal lobes, that are responsible for the really hard thinking we, we do. It could be that expert brands sort of are more fit, if you will, or, or use less resources in the early parts of the tour when they don't need to be used to be reserved Ah. in that way. And that makes sense. And so, uh, you know, somebody who is is an expert is just going to have, and it's just not going to take as much energy to process all the input maybe and get to that decision each time where somebody new, everything's quite new and exciting and and they're using more brain power. Let's take one step back because I love this idea of, uh, I think I found this really interesting in your studies, how experts versus novices make decisions differently and why. Can you walk us through that ideology? Yeah, I mean, the easy why is that they've been doing it longer, right? They're more practice, more repetitions, and and they've just sort of improved. And that goes everything, the physical aspects and subtle motor things we can never be like consciously we call this implicit memories we can never consciously describe like how to weight scans on different with different uh slopes steepness steep angles and all uh, steepness angles and also different surface conditions eventually you just kind of know how much weight to put on but earlier early in your career slipping more and that's just simple motor touch uh-huh and that scales all the way up with just experts of so much more time in the environment and are, I think, are often learning in implicit ways they're not aware of. Ah. Which, and so the experts themselves couldn't tell you why. Even when it comes to decision-making and rec- recognizing signs of danger. So uh, Drew Hardesty, the, the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center, I've had numerous conversations and others in the Avalanche community very interested this idea of expert intuition. That somehow experts just have feelings or they'll just start feeling about the world that's better, uh, that, that, that they're able to re- recognize that, that something novice wouldn't. And the famous stories has come from uh, Danny Kahneman's research with uh, Gary Klein on firefighters. And they'll be on a scene and then suddenly an expert firefighter will note, like, it's not safe. Like, let's get out now. Uh-huh. And then the floor breaks through on everyone. And, and when interviewed later... They said we I couldn't I couldn't tell you what was wrong, but it was. And it's that intuitive sense that that saved lives. And they're unable to explain exactly exactly what that perception was. Um, and yeah, and that makes it difficult. What Drew and I have talked about is if that sense is pushing you toward conservatism, like let's get out of here, like that, do it, follow it. But if it's pushing you the other way of, oh, I got a, a feeling this is just going to ski great. I got a feeling this is going <laughs> to don't go that way and, and increase the more risk. And so that's my kind of general rule. Um, but I like to credit Drew Hardesty for that. He calls it the one-way street of intuition. <laughs> 
I like that, you know, and and I don't know if 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 I'm being too bold here to call intuition sort of a, a gut feeling is what I think a lot of public talks about, uh, you know, your gut feeling. And, and I don't want to open Pandora's box here, but I've done a little bit of, of research or maybe just reading about how a lot of times your subconscious has so much to do with your decision making. And it's actually perceiving things that you aren't consciously perceiving. And that's why I've been told and I've read always try to listen to your gut when it's pushing you in the conservative direction. And I agree. Don't, you don't need to listen to your gut. If it's saying, send it dude. Right? Cause that could go, <laughs> that could always go the wrong way. Being more aggressive is, is not always the right call. Uh, and more often than not is not the right call, but when your gut is giving you a conservative red flag, I, I do think that is something to listen to. So it's cool to see that you guys are seeing it in this realm as well. How can we recognize decision fatigue in ourselves and in our partners? And once recognized, what can we do to fix it? In the, Aviation world, I, I think they refer to this as monitoring. I'm told that in the old, in this commercial aviation, that there would be a pilot and a co-pilot, uh-huh. or but one person would be on flying the plane and the other would be off. And they've moved that to one person is on flying the aircraft and the other person is monitoring. Ah. So one way to think about this is to monitor your partners. And when I'm in mountain environments, I'm often doing this to see if the tip of the nose has frostbite on it (laughs) or things of that nature, you know, but it's physical monitoring, but monitor their decision-making as well. And they're simply the way they're talking, the way they're moving. My best partners, I have a thing that I don't eat enough in the mountains. Uh, They monitor my intake, like, Russ, have you been eating? Ah, that's good. Eat some more food. Eat some... And so, yeah, and just extend that monitoring to more than just looking for frostbite, but, and how fast they're moving, but uh, to continue monitoring their sort of mental state, because it is hard doing yourself. I've sometimes caught myself doing something really dumb or, but it's hard because as you start to get tired, you notice those things less and then you kind of just stop caring even sometimes because you're too tired to care. And so I, I think having good partners and monitoring is my top solution. <laughs> I like that a lot. I, I think that our, our listeners can really take that home is, is monitor your partners and, and do your best to monitor yourself, of course, but uh, that's not always effective as we're talking about, because it's you and you're not, being, you're not able to see yourself that well, but uh, monitoring your partners, you know, Hey, you know, might even be a little conversation, like, Hey, let's, let's make sure we monitor each other when we're out here, keep an eye on each other. And especially as you get towards the end of the day, as you get more tired, as decisions or anytime decisions become critical, I think that makes a ton of sense. Hey, let's keep an eye on each other. You know, make sure that I'm on top of it. I'll try to make sure you're on top of it. But it comes down, yeah, and I think it comes down to little things too. Make sure people are eating and drinking, um, certainly yeah. warm and, and the things we often don't think about because it's easy to just like keep an eye on people from doing really dumb things, but the basics and, and, and know your partners well, because it's, it's good. It's easy to see when sometimes when someone changes, and I've noticed this at in high altitude, even not that high, like Mount Rainier or something at 14, but climbing with people from sea level when I'm like, something just changed about their speech and, and other things. And so I'm used to doing that altitude, but the more I think about the more we should just be doing that all the time, even if altitude's not a concern, just monitor to make sure your partners aren't getting totally <laughs> tired and fatigued and because that's going to affect their decision-making. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think making sure you're hydrated, make sure you're getting food in, you know, especially, you know, we try to, that when I'm guiding, we say we stop every hour. So every hour, get in like a hundred calories, make sure you have a little bit, something to drink, uh, put on sunscreen, you know, all these things can hugely affect us on the mountains. 
Uh, and like you're saying, if we don't take care of ourselves like that, it is going to affect our brains. It is going to dis- affect our decision-making. Also sleep the night before, you know, yes. that, that impact. And, and, you know, I've, a lot of people ski before work these days on very oh, little yeah. sleep. And, yep. uh, uh, yeah, sometimes I wonder when I've done really dumb things in the morning, if it was like, because I slept four hours, you know, I went to bed at midnight, woke up at four. And- oh man, for sure. <laughs> I just read that book, why we sleep. Uh, and I forget the author right now. I apologize, but I highly recommend that to our listeners. Why we sleep changed everything. Uh, cause we all, especially mountain people, we will sacrifice sleep to get into the mountains and it's not always the best call. Uh, sometimes you have to do it, but when you don't have to, don't do it. Cause sleep is everything. And sometimes you're just spending a night in the mountains when it's just not possible to sleep because the wind is ripping or it's freezing oh, yeah. cold or <laughs> oh yeah, God, but, or the elevation. But I think that's the thing about learning how to be in the mountains is you need to learn how to how you perform in that uh, those environments and to be aware that hey, if you had a poor night of sleep for whatever reason, that's going to impact your decision making and maybe it's time to back off a little bit too. Hugely. And, uh, you know, the other thing I thought really impacted me when I was, uh, you know, reading some of your lectures and, and watching some of your videos is you know, the brain is 2% of our body mass and it uses about 20% of our oxygen. And I've read other places. I think the brain uses about 20% of your calories each day. So that's a fifth of, you know, the food and oxygen they're taking in days just going to your brain. So you can imagine how, how important that thing is, how much is it uses and how much is it needs to sustain itself on, on a, on a high level. And well, yeah, when you get calorie depleted or sleep or the other, how is your decision-making going to go downhill in the same way that, you know, your muscle strength goes down when your muscles are worn out. This is that's using 20, 25% of your cal- calories, your oxygen. And Insane. yeah, if you're not, if you don't have enough calories, it's not just going to be your muscles that hurt, right? Your, your decision-making is going to fall off the cliff. Huge, huge to think about. Cause we all do. I mean, I went, I went back country skiing today, just an hour and a half, but I didn't need anything. And, you know, that's, that's not the smartest thing to do. Uh, you know, luckily I was in a safe area to ski the groomer at Alta, but, uh, you know, making sure you stay on top of things. Cause especially what I think what happens is we don't take good care of ourselves, and then something goes wrong or something small goes wrong, which leads to something else small going wrong. And then all of a sudden you're in a bad situation. You haven't been taking good care of yourself. Your decision-making is not going to be strong. Let's jump into what can we do about decision fatigue? So there is, you know, some strategy here. And I was reading this on, on your work about talking about pre-trip, during trip and post-trip strategies to avoid making bad decisions out there. And could you go through this for us? We've already been talking about a lot you can do and eat, <laughs> hydrate, right? Make sure you have enough calories, enough water, um, preferably have enough sleep the night before. Um, and that sets you up well. But some of the other things, at least from a pre-trip avoidance-wise, having pre-trip checklists. Yes. Back to the decision chief topic, one of the, the findings from that, I, I, and somehow this got tied to Obama in a, uh, in a piece. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Obama. But yeah, it's involved but, in everything, man. No, it's like something about uh, had chosen what suit he would wear the day before. So we didn't have to make that decision morning. But I think that's a longer, uh, an older use practice in business. Right. And to, it's to stop from, don't make that decision in the morning. You need your, your, your decision capacity because it's a limited capacity resource you have to be spent right. on more important decisions. And skiers make a different set of decisions there, but to have everything ready in the morning so you don't need to decide even not just what clothing you wear and just to minimize the amount of decisions you have to make before you get into the high-risk environment. 
And that's one of the many benefits of having a pre-trip plan, well set up, what time are we meeting? What am I bringing? All that. Because then by the time you get to the trailhead and, and maybe, you know, it's a trailhead where it's a long approach, by the time you get into avalanche train, you haven't had to make a lot of decisions yet before you have to start making those really critical ones. And so it's uh, checklists help this because the checklist makes the decisions for you. You don't need to think about that. I love that. I love having my bag packed the day before. I love because I feel like in the evening I'm relaxed. I can kind of go through it. I can take my time. There's no rush. And yeah, you can have that checklist and go through. All right. I got my beacon, probe, shovel, food, sunscreen, all the things that I need to have. Everything I've got ready to go. Boom. And a lot of times, you know, you pack early and frantic in the morning and you're trying to make a certain time to meet somebody and you forget something critical. Yeah. There's a couple reasons that happens. And because uh, I was looking at um, forward looking from that example, even if nothing goes, if you don't forget anything or whatever, just having everything together in the morning means you don't have to spend time using not just time to find it, but also energy running through the mental search of did I pack this or that or where did I put this? Right. And, and that's more, you asked how to avoid decision fatigue. That's more energy you'll have for later when you have to make that decision from the ridge line or summit. Almost um, thinking about it like uh, you have a finite amount of good decisions per day. And so let's not waste some of those in the morning when we're just packing our damn bag. Absolutely. So that's, <laughs> I, I think that's, that's advised uh, to business people as well. So, you know, Makes make decisions what suit you're wearing before. So that was pre-trip. So oh, let's talk, pre, about, yeah. let's talk about during trip. You know, the notes I, I got from you are, so during the trip, oh. there's communication, crowdsourcing info, slow down, uh, use decision points and hydrate uh, meat. And so, yeah, can you speak to some of those for yeah, dur so, during trip? So the pre-trip checklist was, was something that worked and, and sort of during trip, um, yeah, the hydration during the trip and, and monitoring there. Communication is another big one. Um, Huge. Um, and so that's just for safety in general, but also sharing observations helps to increase your perception through that communication instead of just your eyes, your ears, your uh, body that was uh, um, sort of experiencing the, the ascent. What did the partner, what did your partners think and, and maximize that benefit through communication? Now you're, you're sort of crowdsourcing your, your observations. And that's another important, I think preach or during trip act thing to do as you get to that, those big decision points. And I feel like that's huge because that happens to me all the time that somebody in the group notices something critical that uh, the others haven't. And if we weren't communicating, that wouldn't have happened. So, Hey, you know, Hey, I just saw a shooting crack over there. I just heard a wump. Did you No. let's talk about it and let's make a new plan. Let's make a new decision. And then I like also how you talk about slow down. Could you, could you speak to that? Yeah, just to back up a point, your last point uh, yeah, yeah. about the uh, that's the model used by or looking at the somebody notices something and doesn't say something, the problem you observe. That's been noticed in aviation accidents, right? Medical accidents, surgeries, and such. And so those professional organizations and professional those jobs have lots of training into sort of how to avoid that type of error. And one of the things we're trying to do in education efforts is move those kind of what, what they do in aviation and what they do in, in professional medical settings to uh, backcountry touring parties, even uh, recreational touring parties to improve that safety margin. Makes so, a ton of sense. Yeah. And yeah, because their pilots are good at it. Doctors are good at it. Yeah, Nurses yeah. are good at it. Recreational ski tours, eh, 
there's, there's some variability there, right? <laughs> oh yeah. There's so and then, yeah, there's so many, all the hubris and all the issues that we all have being macho and, you know, trying to be tough and, and just power through things. And, uh, you know, I don't want to bring up a problem. Let's just keep rolling. And uh, that has not been helping us at all. So I think that us backcountry skiers need to get a lot better about communicating. And I love the idea of crowdsourcing information within your group. Being rushed is another time we know humans make errors. And I, we've known this, we being cognitive psychologists have known this for a long time. Um, simply asking someone to do something faster in a reaction time test, they can speed up but they're going to make more mistakes and make more errors. And that's what we call the speed accuracy trade-off. Uh-huh. There might be a time when you're willing to accept a little more risk, a little, uh, a little more margin for mistakes and errors for that speed, because maybe the speed is, is on your side for safety. But um, for the most part, don't rush and slow down. And a lot of things we've talked about communication and, and that crowdsourcing, that takes time. Yes. And you have to slow down and well, may not stop, but you slow down to a pace where you can, we can talk. And there's definitely been times when, yeah, I've wanted to say things and it's just been like, well, I, I might as well just save my energy. And it's too, it's too complex a point about the snow I want to make. And I can't have this conversation right now. Right. <laughs> too yeah. tired. And so it, that does require slowing down and, and that comes with costs as well. Like you might get stuck behind the red snake. And, <laughs> and that's, and, you know, relative to what, you know, your life and limb, that's a relatively small consequence. So I think that we all need to take that in perspective. Uh, and to your point, you know, being rushed, being rushed makes us uh, make more errors. It, we all know that's the case. We all do that almost on a daily basis. My very first ski run of the year here, I think it was November 2nd. I ran up to get to the top of Main Chute uh, on Mount Baldy in a little bit of a storm. And I got to the top and these two skimo guys in spandex and no backpack show up. And they're just ripped their skins off about to go. So I said, hey, hey, you know, do you mind if I go first? I really wanted to be the first one because it was fresh snow. And so I'm scrambling to get ready. I get ready really fast, as fast as I can. And I drop in and about three turns in my right ski just explodes off and goes flying and I crash and it's hilarious. And I'm pretty sure looking back, it's because I was rushed and I didn't lock that out. I didn't pull the tab up on my DinaFit binding to make sure that it was tight. It was just at the loosest setting. So making these kind of mistakes can have consequence. Luckily for me, I just fell over. It was no big deal. My ski didn't go too far. But then I always think back to the, you know, the Teton AT guys, Steve Romeo and his partner, I forget his name right now. They were rushed uh, doing a backcountry tour in the Grand Teton National Park a handful of years ago because one of their fathers was flying in and they needed to pick him up at the Jackson Airport. And they made a shortcut. They did something wrong. They were rushed. They ended up in a huge avalanche that I think normally they would not have been in that zone. And they both perished. And that's so sad. And, you know, the, the consequence on the other side was just that your dad had to wait a little longer, uh, which is not so bad. So that 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 rushing in the mountains really has true consequence that we need to all be aware of. Another one of the points here in uh, during your trip was uh, using decision points throughout the day to communicate with partners. Could you speak to that a little bit? I think that's a great idea that we don't do enough. During a ski tour, there, there are certain times uh, where you're going to stop. Oftentimes it's a ridge mm-hmm. or it's a summit sometimes, and, and you do need to transition there. But in addition to just thinking the physical terrain features where you should stop or where you shouldn't stop, right? Depends the slopes above you. To think about when in that tour is there a critical decision point? Of course, the decision to send is going to always be a critical decision point, but there are others about if there's multiple skin tracks or multiple potential ways to attain a ridge, 
do we go to up the one on the left or up the one on the right? Right. And to stop and talk about that with your partners. A couple of years ago, we were skiing out in in uh, the Stansberries on, in the Twin Coolars there off of uh, Desert Peak. And there's Twin Coolars and we got to them and they look pretty much the same and made the decision to go up the left one. And part of it was because there was a cornice overhanging the rocks on the right. It was one of those early spring mornings, like, uh, I'm sorry, mid spring mornings, but early morning when the sun was hitting that for the first time <laughs> uh, after a new storm and the whole cornice comes down and down the cooler on the right as we're probably two thirds of the way up the one on the left. And Whoa. Yeah. It well, it wasn't even that hard of a decision though. And, but I, I never really communicated that I was leading. I just sort of said, no, we're going up the one on the left. And uh, I never really communicated that to the, the, the partners with that day, but uh, why, but <laughs> yeah, that would be a great thing to talk about, but I should have, I should have shared that. And it, I did look at it and the overhang and it, it, it just one of those decision points that um, I think when you hit that, why didn't I stop to talk about it? Yes. And why didn't we communicate to the team? And, um, and so the, these, these places you need to stop should not just be physical places of where at the top of the climb, we need to take the skins off. But if there's a place you need to make a critical decision, that's a good time to stop and, and communicate, provided it's in a safe place. Um, you don't necessarily need to have these conversations if you're in a, at risk to avalanche or cornice or everything overhead. I think that's great. And I've, I'm trying to get better about communicating with my partners more, even when I don't really have anything to communicate. I sometimes just check in like, hey, how, how you feeling? Does everything feel good here? Any ideas, any questions, comments, ideas? And so I think just being more communicative is going to be great for all of us backcountry travels, especially in avalanche terrain. And when he was referring to the Stansbury Mountains as a, a remote mountain range in, in Western Utah, kind of in the desert, it's a pretty cool area. So that was during the trip. Let's hit post-trip. So what are the best things to do post-trip? You know, at this point, you're not really decision-making anymore, but there's still some good ideas, some good practices here. Yeah, and, and I think one other question I get a lot of I'm just asking the questions for myself now. Just kidding. <laughs> That's easier. It makes my of, job easy. Yeah, it's how do we become a better decision maker? Right. And one of the ways I think we do that is with effective debriefing. By at the end of our day, uh, reflecting on the decisions we made uh, throughout that day. And, and that's a way to get better at it. Not just going out there and making decisions, but then to go back and think what went what went well today? What didn't go well? What could we done better? Whether our place were uncomfortable? There's lots of different ways to go through a debriefing. But I think the other benefit is it, it improves your decision-making into the future. It also gets to help you understand your partners a lot better, particularly if you're sort of building a, a newer relationship with a, with a backcountry partner. Yeah. And I feel like you can build some good boundaries there too. Like, Hey, that went bad. I don't want to ever be in a situation like that. Or, Hey, that was great. Let's, let's figure out how to make that happen more often. Uh, on so both. I, yeah. On all. Yeah. I think that's a, that's perfect point uh, on all, all sides too. Sometimes the boundaries are like, I don't want to ski with this person again because their, <laughs> yeah. their wrist is way too high. Other yeah. times it, it uh, might be more, if we ski again, then I, we need to, choose mellower terrain because they were uncomfortable and and it comes into sort of deciding where everyone's going to be happy the next day but it's more about happiness more than about who's happiest right it's about safety <laughs> right now yes and um yeah my debriefing i've actually 
sometimes you get too caught up in the how things what went well today. We skied out some powder. Great yeah. ski line. We're all back to the car okay. <laughs> when yeah. No one died. Uh, no one got injured. <laughs> and then what, what didn't go well today? Eh, trail breaking sucked, right? Whatever. Uh, and right. so I've just skipped all the what went well today stuff and just asked a simple question. It's like, when were we at the most risk today? Ah, great question. That's it. And it's simple. It's easy to remember. And the reason I do that, though, is it also forces us to look at our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Like, when was I at the most risk? And it gets away from that, oh, everything went well today. And that kind of cuts the learning off there. Just repeat and do again. Right. But you can always find something you wish you could do that you should have done better. And I think uh, asking that, particularly about risk, has helped me sort of fine tune my behavior in the mountains. And I still have a long way to go. I am going to remember that. That's huge. I, I love asking that. When were we the most vulnerable today? When we were most at risk today? Uh, because it's so easy. I think part of how the human brain is designed is you just remember the great stuff. And a lot of times you forget the bad things. You know, you go on a trip and you don't remember the suffering and the long slogs. You remember, wow, that run was so great. Let's do it again. But I think that's key. Let's let's push that stuff aside just for now. We get back to the car. Let's ask, hey, where were we most at risk today? What could we have done better? I love that. So that's a point I'm really going to take home. I hope our, our listeners take home. There's a lot of good points in here in the pre-trip, during trip, and post-trip. But I love that debrief. And I think that's something we a lot of us skip. You know, it's right to, hey, I got some beers in the snow right here. Uh, and then let's just talk about how, how fun that was and how rad we are. Uh, but um, I really think that we should take a moment to think about, all right, where were we most at risk today? I'm glad you brought up uh, beers in the snow because it, it reminds me of a quote by uh, Blaze Reardon, and he wrote a piece for the, I think the Avalanche Review five, eight years ago. And he, when he recommended the briefing, I think it was something to the effect of make your de- uh, debriefing more than just uh, toasting beers at the end of your day. Yes. And I, I think that's too often what briefing becomes, although that's definitely a great way to end a day, right? <laughs> it is, but you can do both, right? Because I think that part of the macho culture of the mountains is we cheers, we get a beer, we cheers afterwards, and we don't talk about anything that went wrong. We just talk about what was rad. And that's part of the macho thing. Like, don't complain, don't bring up anything bad. But I do think that's good. Like, hey, hey, let's, you know, we should be thinking on the ideology of how can we do this better? And I really like that mentality. So a synopsis here is we make mistakes in the mountains when we're distracted, when we're rushed, when we're fatigued. And I think that's a really interesting segue into the pandemic. How do you think the pandemic, because the pandemic has us distracted, it's got us rushed, it's got us fatigued without even going into the mountains before we even get there. How do you think the pandemic has affected people's decision-making in the mountains? The first decision is always to go to the mountains. <laughs> right. And it's put more people in the mountains. It's put more people in avalanche terrain. That was a trend that was naturally happening for a long time. I was one of those people 20 years ago. Me too. But it tur- it it exploded because the resorts closed and and I, I think back uh, to that weekend it was uh, the end of my spring break a reasonably stable snowpack um, at least by that point in that snowpack the persistent weak deep layers had largely calmed down everyone was stoked to get out yes. And it, there were storms on the horizon, a good weather window in, in late March and through early April. It's looking like we had a couple of storms lined up. Yeah, it was just a time when everyone was excited to get out. And 
it there'd been a slow increase in people, you know, buying more touring gear, buying avalanche transceivers, taking avalanche courses. But the skiing was so good at the resort, people were still largely skiing the resort. And then the pandemic hits and the resort shuts down and it I, dumps. Of course. It's crazy. <laughs> of course. And so yeah, that's everything was different that weekend. Uh, I think it was also one of those storms that came in on a Friday. A lot of people didn't have to go into work anymore. It, <laughs> it was in all of these, all of these things, we haven't even talked about snow yet, other than the fact that it was snowing as a detractor, a tractor that drew people into the mountains, into the backcountry. And I, I think some of that, was the, the the result we saw, which was a lot of people caught and carried, uh, thankfully no one killed, uh, was just more people out. Right. Um, and because the resorts were closed and that meant in a, in a the crowded and, and relatively small mountain range we are in the Wasatch, lots of people on the skin tracks above each other. And it was, it was, it was an interesting and, and to be honest, quite scary time. Um, even though the snow was mostly stable, it was just new snow problems that were sort of happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, then you get the problem of just too many people in one place, uh, which always creates problems in the back country. Well, well there, but there were other problems though, right? Because that one place was Alta ski area. Um, uh -huh. primarily, I mean, people were at the other skiers too, but for whatever, I was across the street on uh, the Emma Ridges sort of, I had binoculars with me and, uh, was just watching that, uh, sort of the conga line go up, uh, course grew and, and, and thinking about that. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Grand Targhee. With good times served daily at Grand Targhee Resort, it's time to embrace the vibe. Escape the crowds and get back to enjoying skiing and snowboarding the way it was meant to be. From our family-friendly kids' adventure zone and uncrowded runs to the wide-open terrain for all abilities, the big mountain feel and western charm makes Grand Targhee a must-visit winter destination. And that's great segue into what I want to talk about next is, uh, you know, heuristics. And, uh, and one of the things is the FACETS heuristics, which is an acronym F-A-C-E-T-S. So before we get started, let's just define heuristic. It's a weird word. Basically means a mental shortcut uh, that might help people solve problems, make judgments more quickly, more efficiently. Uh, but they could also be a crutch. So it, it can, it can be a two sided blade here. So as we get more tired, we run out of mental energy. We rely on heuristics sometimes instead of doing a full analysis. So I'm curious to hear you speak to that. And then we can kind of go through the, the acronym, but, uh, but yeah, do you think that's, that's kind of part of it as, as we get tired, we run out of energy in our minds and our brains, and we start to rely on heuristics instead of really analyzing what's going on. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we see with why the reason I talk about being distracted so much, because we, um, uh, we don't have enough free mental resources and kind of think of like when you have way too much going on on your way too many windows open on your computer screen. Right. And, yeah. um, use the, the shortcut. That's when you use a shortcut when mm -hmm. we're really rushed heuristics are fast relative to that slow thought. Uh, when, um, Daniel Kahneman, um, who I've referenced before, but, uh, talks, uh, in, in much of his research work and including his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, 
about uh, two systems, system one thought and system two thought. With system one thought uh, being more instinctual and habitual, but not using the human brain. And, and system one thought is really fast and mm-hmm. really easy, doesn't use a lot of effort. And so when we're rushed, we need a fast decision to use the heuristic. And when we're fatigued, we need an easy decision that doesn't take a lot of effort. We've talked about decision fatigue, right? Uh, we rely on uh, that system one thought. We rely on those heuristics because they, they require so much en- less energy than that system two thought would. That's much slower. That makes a ton of sense. And so I think it's something for us to remember. You know, heuristics are helpful, but we don't want to be rushed and use them as a crutch, use them in, in place of actually taking in all the data and taking the time to make a good decision. Um, and so FACETS is F-A-C-E-T-S. Uh, and FACETS, of course, is something in the snowpack. It's when crystals get large and have low density, and that can create a weak layer in, in, in a snowpack, and that can, can really contribute to avalanches. So that's why this is a, a great acronym. Uh, so let's just start with the first words. It's familiarity, acceptance, consistency, experts, tracks, slash scarcity, and social facilitation. Uh, and so you kind of brushed on familiarity just now, but let's hit it one more time. Could you walk us through familiarity? Yeah, so familiarity is the um, really a reliance on memory, um, in particular sort of the easiestly accessible memory, memories um, to make decisions. Because... Cognitively assessing a snowpack and and, uh, sort of takes a lot of time and effort. You could judge its stability by the last time you were there. Maybe it was last week or last two weeks ago or last season, and it was stable then. So why wouldn't it be stable now? And that logic, of course, seems silly. But when you're really tired or um, uh, we've been talking about really rushed uh, uh, to make a decision um, um, or not want to put a lot of time into it, Let's go where we went last time. And that's a great evolutionary strategy if you're trying to find food or something, right? You go go uh-huh. to the place you went last time. And we're so used to doing that in humans and just going to familiar places. And in a, in a dynamic environment, like a mountain snowpack is in winter, the environment's changing a lot more rapidly with uh, what's safe one day might not be safe the next. I agree. And I think this is my number one biggest weakness is familiarity. I ski a lot of the same places in the backcountry over and over. And, you know, it's like, well, I skied here yesterday. Come on, man. I'm just, I'm not even going to check. Let's just drop in. And so that's something I've really been trying to check myself with is, okay, hey, even though I know the zone, it doesn't mean it's avalanche safe today, just because it was avalanche safe yesterday. So let's re- reanalyze it. Let's not be lazy. Let's take in some data and, and make a decision. Um, so I love that. So that's the, that's the F. A might be different. Acceptance or sometimes anchoring. And what do you use? <laughs> McCammon, and it's his acronym. Okay. Uh, 2002, he used acceptance. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, but I, could, I, I, I actually talk about anchoring more. And I, <laughs> but uh, we'll stick with what McCammon wrote for now. We can yeah. circle back to anchoring. So acceptance is basically we want to be accepted, right? We want, we want our, our partners to like us. We don't want to ruin the group's fun by saying, hey, I don't feel safe here. Let, let's head elsewhere. And so, um, yeah, it's basically just sort of we, we want to be accepted. And so we make decisions along those lines, um, kind of peer pressure, but even if the pressure is not applied by our peers, we apply it to ourselves to not be the, the person who ruins the trip for everyone. 
I think that's great. And, and this is something I actually, I try to be proactive on a lot of times before a tour, I'll, I'll have a quick talk about, Hey, if anybody doesn't feel good, we're, we're walking away. And that, I feel like, I hope that takes some of that pressure off that peer pressure. So we're a team. It's not just the one guy, but in the end it is going to be a little bit like, well, Tommy said he didn't like it. So we had to turn around. So I, I think it's something that we all need to overcome that. Like, hey, if anybody's not into it, we should probably turn around. I like that. So, so the third one is uh, the C in facets is consistency. Yeah, and this, or sometimes this gets labeled as commitment, commitment or consistency that we'll see. So, um, and this is um, sort of the stick withedness. This is our goal. Um, And we want to sort of, we're committed to that goal, or we want to sort of offer behave in ways that are consistent with our goals. And this basically is. um, I think it's um, at work a lot in a couple different ways that that can get scary. One is checklists that have existed, not necessarily what to bring on a ski tour, but of what to ski on that ski tour and uh, certain books out there in, in the Wasatch and also nationally. And they're great. They're full of great ski lines, but sometimes people are objective oriented and they're in Utah or in Tahoe or in Jackson or in Alaska for a particular week or weekend. Yes. with the objective to ski that particular shot and you got to ski the day, right? You can't. Yep. Yeah. You, you just have to be patient with that. And so that's one way I think it's pushing people particularly into radical terrain because it's their one chance to ski that I'm fortunate locally that I can wait till next week or next month or next year, but that's not always the case. And I think that's one way the consistency heuristic can get people So that's the C, consistency and commitment. And uh, the fourth letter, E, is experts. Yeah, or or specifically expert halo. Um, Ah. And in this case, you sort of feel safer when you're around an expert. That's definitely how my mentoring worked. I was fortunate to have outstanding mentors throughout my sort of skiing career. But when I didn't know that much, I was sort of just getting out. I was relatively late um, to take an avalanche course. I think nowadays many most skiers do it like before their first tour or, or in their first year. I probably took an avalanche course my fourth year or so of backcountry skiing. Yeah, me too. But I was blessed to have outstanding mentors who kept me safe and made good decisions because we never had any avalanche incidents when we were skiing really radical terrain in those and it still are, but, uh, um, in those days. And I just went along with it because they were the experts and went along with their decisions, but yeah, it was, it worked out. But I think back to my decision now, why did I feel so safe on lines that are so dangerous? And I think it was because, uh, well, the expert, the guy who's been skiing this for 20 years, is still here. Uh, the guy who's knows a lot more than I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> so well, that's the expert halo. And I just feel better about it. Not because there's anything about the snow that, that I know, but the experts trust it. But I think the other way the expert halo flows, and this kind of connects to anchoring is, uh, there's, there's a series of, uh, close calls here in the Wasatch two years ago. Now the forecast of that day had issued a, a low danger day, a green, uh, completely green avalanche sort of danger rose. And, People went crazy. <laughs> like, yeah, I bet. Super rad uh, day. And as it was kind of the day that everyone had been waiting for. And it, 
I went out, I didn't get out to the afternoon. I was teaching a workshop that morning and, and got out on the afternoon and, and quickly immediately noticed that the snow cracking under my feet and all that. And it was like, it wasn't really the train we were in. We we're in really low, low angle terrain uh-huh. and the little sloughs weren't going to be a problem. It wasn't steep enough to run, but I wondered like, this isn't low danger. And it had gotten yeah. so windy. Um, I could look up, I was looking at the ridges and seeing like uh, sort of plumes off the ridges. I'm like, this, this is at least moderate. Right. And it, it right. turned out Things that are in, changing. The higher, in the higher terrain, it was far worse. And again, thankfully there were no fatalities that day, but it was one of those days in the Wasatch I'll remember. And one of it was that, and we had the opportunity uh, to interview some of the, uh, uh, the, the people, the persons involved in the slides. And, one of the questions I asked was sort of, if the danger had not been low, would you have been there? Would you have skied that? And, and without any hesitance, they said now, all of them. Wow. And I think some of that's that we remain anchored to the forecast. Yeah. We saw that green in the anchoring heuristic adjustment used by Kahneman suggests that, yeah, people make a decision and they don't change their value much. So they made the decision at seven in the morning the danger was low by three or 4 PM. There had been wind loading and other things going on. It was not low, but they didn't update their danger enough. And in some ways they, they remained anchored to the forecast, but why wouldn't they But back to the expert halo because the expert avalanche forecaster from the excellent avalanche forecast center put that danger out and they know more than I do. And that's full circle. And I, I totally agree with that. And I've seen that happen before when it's low, People want to really go for it, but you do need to keep taking in information, keep taking in inputs because, hey, it's low when they did this at seven in the morning, but now it's windy, it's wind loading, things are changing, but you don't want to, you still want to get that goal. You know, you're still thinking it's it's a low danger, even though it's totally changed. I think that that's a really good one for our listeners, or our listeners to pay attention to. And the fifth one is the T in facets is tracks uh, slash scarcity. I know I've been making local Wasatch references too much, um, but that's no, where like my it. experience is. Uh, I think about this one all the time as a, as a Wasatch local. Um, again, a really small mountain range with a whole lot of people in it right now. And oh, yeah. tracks are scarce. Fresh tracks are scarce. Uh, even in the backcountry, there are certain places you can always go if you want to walk far enough. Or, But this, I think, has two effects. Uh, one, we already talked about tracks make us feel safer. And sometimes tracks are a good indicator of safety, but when you're dealing with really well, when you're with persistent weak layers, like we hard last slab. year, and yeah, like we were last year, and like we probably will be this year. Who knows? Uh, we'll see, but likely Not tracks kind of aren't. Yeah, tracks aren't an indicator. So one is sort of using existing tracks as a sign of safety. The other way this plays in decision-making, I think, is does it push people into more radical terrain? Because a lot here, a lot of the sort of go-to safe zones in the Wasatch get skied very quite heavily because people know they're safe. And do people opt to ski the slightly higher pitch slope or the slightly more ski slope because there are fresh tracks there? And so do tracks push people into a level of risk that might be slightly higher than they were planning before the day began. 
I think there's no doubt both of those cases are true because I've done that. I, I've seen tracks somewhere and thought, oh, well, they've already skied it. So I'm the fifth or sixth guy. So that won't be an issue. And then I've also been pushed into gnarlier terrain because like, oh, man, well, what we planned on skiing is been skied. But that gnarlier line just over there is fresh. I think it's OK. Let's push it. And as you and I know about the, the Mill Creek avalanche on February 21st, 2020 in the Wasatch Mountains, I think there was already six or seven or eight tracks before the avalanche went on a you know, hard slab. So, whoa, okay. I was way done. So 15 tracks before the avalanche was triggered. So tracks are not a sign of safety and really do need to be resistant to, hey, just because the, the spot you plan on skiing has tracks doesn't mean you should push it into more challenging terrain. So I think those are those are really great points. And now we'll hit the very last one. The sixth, uh, the sixth heuristic here in facets is the S, and that's social facilitation. So social proof. This is what Bruce Tremper, the former director of Utah Avalanche Center and author of the book Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain, which gets um, recommended by myself as well. Um, He's a legend. Legendary book, legendary. Uh, a director and, and great guy. But Bruce refers to this, I believe, in staying alive in Avalanche Train and other, other talks as, as the hurting instinct. Mm. And we follow where others are. If we don't know where to ski, we go to where the others are going. Or again, the sort of idea of tracks, it's kind of overlaps with tracks in, in my mind a lot, that if there are tracks there, it's going to be safe because other people have skied it. Right. And so in both those examples we talked about, it's not the stability of the snow itself. It's using this easy cue. Oh, this track's on a slope. It must be safe. Or, oh, this we should go over there because it's fresh. None of that has to do with, with the snowpack itself, but they're easy ways of making decisions where to ski. And, and that's the danger. Those That's where that's a shortcut, but can be a dangerous one. Well, there's a famous video that we published on Snowbrains not too long ago of somebody who followed tracks, I think in Telluride and ended up going off like a 150 foot cliff. And so, uh, yeah, so we do need to be really careful about what we follow because you just, you don't know what those people's experiences or what they're looking for. So slope angle perception, how good are or bad are humans at perceiving slope angle in the mountains? And slope angle is huge because, you know, there's certain angles that are way more prone to avalanches and certain angles that are much safer. So yeah, how, how good or bad are humans at perceiving slope angle? In the mountains, <laughs> we don't know how bad, and, and that's the key. And the research in psychology from this, including by colleagues of mine, when I left the University of Utah, I graduated my PhD from there and, and moved to my new job, which is only a mile and a half away. But Dr. Jean Stefanucci was just arriving. I think we, but we had overlapped. I think when she was interviewing her, maybe she got hired the year after. And she's published a lot in this with some of her colleagues from the University of Virginia. Uh, our old advisor, Dennis Prophet, a former colleague, Dr. Sarah uh, Kareem Regeer. And then what their research found is that even on, well, on mundane slopes like uh, the hills on a college campus or in a city park uh -huh. humans were judging five and six degree slopes to be 15 to 20 degrees something of that nature in other words doubling tripling uh -huh. the steepness of a slope because it was a bias to just sort of say that humans are judge slopes more steeper than they are and this probably makes sense evolutionarily um, there's probably a good reason we avoid steep slopes not just to not fall off of them but 
because um, it's more energy to walk uphill. And so to be able to detect subtle differences of the hill and kind of, oh, the mind overestimates them. That's probably where these biases come from. Very early evolutionary kind of uh, early perceptual biases that lead into our judgments. When it gets to steeper slopes, I think humans also do that, but partly fear probably factors in too. As skiers, you know, we really like those 40, uh, skiers, skiers who love steep slopes, really love those 40 degree slopes, sometimes 50, go bigger. I think for most humans, once the slope gets to 50, 60, they basically, suggest, that's 90 degrees and they treat it like a 90 degree slope because the reality is in life that is often like a uh, 90 degree slope. If you fall off that, the consequences are the same. Um, right. It's a 90 degree slope, you know, in various places, six, you know? Yeah, you're and not so going to stop fall, falling. And so humans certainly overestimate those kind of slopes. Like they rate at a cliff as being, you know, what we would call a steep ski line. Right. The critical point though, and you mentioned this for avalanche research is um, what happens around 30 degrees? Uh, because you you noted in your trail that it, it matters for avalanche, different types of avalanches. And, and the type of avalanche that kill most people are hard slab avalanches. Uh, and those don't run on slopes less steep than 30 degrees. They, there's just too much friction, basically. They'll collapse, you'll hear these big collapses of the slab, but they, they don't move. Wet slides and other kinds of avalanches can do that, but the most deadly form of avalanche it doesn't, doesn't uh, slide, it doesn't avalanche on, on slopes less than 30 degrees. And so this is a nice, decision point to be able to identify if you want to keep it safe, particularly dealing with the snowpack like we were last year in the Wasatch, like they deal with all the time in Colorado, where you have these deep, persistent instabilities that are very difficult to detect. There's a lot of spatial variability, and even a snowpack here might not tell you what's going on in a snowpack 50 meters down the ridge. Even a snowpack doesn't get you feeling good about them. These are the type of avalanches we talked about that that slide when it was when you're the 10th or 12th or 15th or 20th person on the slope, like we saw last year in Utah. So scary. And it's very difficult to identify where what will and won't slide. It's sort of a, a low probability it's going to slide but huge consequences if it does environment. And in my mind, it's the hardest environment to make decisions in. One of the ways around that safely is to keep, to not be on slopes over 30 degrees and not to be under slopes greater than 30 degrees. But that means we need to be able to identify what a 30 degree slope is. And more and more humans are offloading a lot of their good, but not always great decision-making apparatus in their brains to technology and using things like CalTOPO, which is a great, I use it uh, to sort of look at routes and look at particularly what's going to be, I'm in the Tetons or something, what's going to be 1,500 meters above me. Right. Um, but there've been problems, uh, been avalanche accidents where, you know, people are trying to sort of fine tune a narrow patch sliver of yellow, which would typically mean under 30 degrees, and your settings are set between these orange zones that are 30 plus degrees. Right. Uh. And the resolution in CalTOPO for the, that that fine of planning, I, I don't know if I trust it and recommend it. I think it's a great it's a great tool. And the other way of accurate measuring slopes, the great way is to use your inclinometer, right? But that often means you have to get on the slope or really close to it under it. Uh, there are ways of doing it remotely, but as you start doing it more remotely, you lose a little bit of, uh, you lose some accuracy there. And so 
It's not always safe to get on the slope to measure it. And so there's going to be some role, I think, for the human eye to be able to estimate slope angle. And I, I think you know, the slope angle thing is huge too, because I, I, from what I read, I think that slope angle perception even had a role in that Mill Creek avalanche we talked about that took four lives in Utah in February, 2021. It, uh, I think they thought it was a little less steep than it was, you know, and, but maybe that's what they were using maps, you know, uh, and if it wasn't in that situation, I know it's happened in others. So it scares, uh, it scares me a lot that accident for so many reasons, but one of them, one of them is the slope angle that slid on, I think was 31 degrees. Yes. Okay. That's why I was so close to the the cusp. Yeah. And and I, I, that's one of the many things that got me interested in the slope angle perception study. And the other thing I'm interested in is, can we get better at it and how? And so my colleagues in psychology tell me that uh, uh, surveyors can estimate slopes quite accurately. So can huh. architects huh. and probably other people who work with the regulars. So is it possible to train and, and our expert uh, backcountry skiers better at simply judging slopes with their eyes, uh, judging slope angles with their eyes than novices? And we don't know. And that's one of the many things we're trying to look at with this with this new study. Well, that'll be interesting because it'd be great if there was a pathway to figure out how to get better at judging slope angle. But as you're insinuating, it probably is experience uh, getting out there and finding out. But you also have to check the data, right? You maybe have to guess and then check it with your inclinometer and see where your guesses lie. And probably a lot of experience. So it's not the type of thing you pick up in your first ski tour, your first season even. Uh, You might be able to get better, certainly to be able to judge the difference between maybe a 40 degree slope and a 30 and a 30 and a 20. But to get to that 28 versus 31, I, I, I don't know what errors were made there. I wasn't you know, there that day, of course, but um, I don't think there are many skiers who could regularly distinguish between a 30 to 28 and a 31 degree slope. Because no. it's, not, it's not a straight line like a triangle. Slopes roll, they undulate, yep. they're, they're, they're changing a degree or two or 10 here to there. And I, I don't know. And we're just really interested to see where and how good humans are in this range. I wanted to jump into confirmation bias. So I thought this concept was extremely interesting. Uh, confirmation bias. So can you please tell us about confirmation bias and, and how it affects us in avalanche terrain? Yeah, and if in many ways I frame this as the as the seventh heuristic in in uh, McCammon's facets uh, collection, ah. um, or the other C, right? We had anchoring as the other A, and, and confirmation bias as the other C. Okay, um, but uh, confirmation bias is an interesting theory that I think affects what we do as scientists as well as what we do as as um, in everyday life. So. Uh, uh, so dramatically because it it's a filter on what we pay attention to in the world or and what decisions we make in the world and particularly we attend to information that confirms our beliefs our hypotheses and perhaps our our desires those are the things we notice and those are the things we pay attention to and our and our expectations and so if we go out expecting it to be a low danger day. If we go into the back country, expecting to, we see all those signs of stability, yes. but we, it's what we don't see. That's the problem. Um, we go out ex- seeking uh, or seeking information that confirms our expectations. And I think this works also when it comes to, even if it's not a low danger day, uh, not just confirming an expectation, what we read in the forecast that morning, 
do we seek information that confirms our our desires about what we want the snowpack to be and everything from sort of <laughs> having multiple people look at the same snow pit and come up with different observations that's a fascinating thing by the way yes that is. Uh, uh, and does it factor into how hard we tap shovels if we're doing a, a compression test with a shovel or extended column test i don't know to go this deep into it but it's the fact that we see what we want, I've noticed it mostly with me dealing with weather. I've, I don't know exactly how I handle that and out for avalanche decisions, but I've been in the mountains and seen clouds that looked quite ominous yeah. <laughs> and seen a storm. And, and I think some of the biggest decisions, the biggest mistakes I'm in the mountains have been maybe not with avalanches, but with, with, with weather decisions and particularly in really remote places. And, of course, that was a storm coming in, but the yeah. weather said it was going to be a clear day. So I'll, I'll rely on the weather forecast instead of what's clear to my eyes or I'll rely on what I want. Of course, such as I want that just be a cloud to blow over. And, yep. and how did I not see that? And it's like I was just looking for information that confirmed what I expected the weather to be from the weather from the forecast that morning or um, uh, what I wanted it to be. I do that. Over and over again, confirmation bias, I think is, I didn't even know about it before, but I, I in, instinctually know about it because I do it all the time. I see and experience what I want to see and experience. And then when you was kind of like putting blinders on a horse, right? You're like, oh, here's, I think it's stable and I can ski steep terrain today. So though I'm just going to see stability and, you know, clean lines and everything perfect. Uh, but, oh, there was a little crack and something over there. Yeah, but it's stable, you know? And so I think that's so interesting. I do this, I do this in other things in life too. Like you talked about weather. I do this with when I go surfing. I do this when I'm traveling. You, know, you see what you want. You try to manifest what you want. So that's another great heuristic. We need to think about, you know, take a step back, continue like kind of like we talked about the low danger when it was low danger and things were changing. People didn't want to see those changes. They wanted to just focus on. No, it was the forecast said green today. Well, let's all take a step back and remember to take in the new input, take in the new information and make new decisions. So I want to try something with you. I think this is this is almost on the fringe of, of science. Uh, it's a little bit in the theoretical realm. But I love this idea that I read when I was learning about you yesterday. It appears that experts do pretty well making decision-making compared to novices, but experts do worse when they're in unusual environments. So environments that differ from what they learned in. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about an expert being somebody who's put in 10,000 hours uh, in that realm. So let's say an expert's put in 10,000 hours in the mountains, but now they're in an environment that's different from what they learned in. And I, I was thinking about how are uh, reading about how climate change is kind of making that happen in the mountains. So we have more extreme events. Things are warmer. Uh, things are really changing fast in the mountains. So I think it's going to be really interesting moving forward. I'm curious your thoughts on it. So I'm a mountain expert, let's say. Oh, I know I know about mountains and I get out there. But now with climate change, things are so different. You know, we might not have you know true experts on the mountains moving forward because things are going to be so dynamic potentially. One of my mentors and good friends fought fire, he's retired now, but uh, fought wildland fire for his uh, long career in, in the BLM and probably other agencies. And he and I were talking, I was probably talking in the context of snowpack, but he said, uh, I'm glad I've retired from the, from the fire game now. The past doesn't predict the present. And I feel much less, implying he feels less much 
much less confident relying on those for him 20 years, 20 plus years of, of I mean, 30 years of firefighting experience to deal with what they're presently dealing with wildfires right now. And I think the same thing exists in the snow and avalanche world where even 50 year models aren't that predictive now. I mean, little Cottonwood Canyon has had two 50 year avalanche cycles in the last like three years. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so suddenly what these 50 year anomalies aren't, aren't abnormal anymore. And, and it's a different environment. And I think that that speaks a lot to, we can't just rely on what used to work in our systems and, and we need to update our systems and, and making decisions because it's a different environment out there, uh, both socially, a lot more skiers out there. I've done things differently in terms of where there, there are places that I just don't go anymore and crowded weekend days, um, not just because of fresh tracks, but there's too many skiers above me right. to uh, and too many parties. And we saw um, that last year in Utah with uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Wilson Glade accident where it involved uh, two separate parties, one that was didn't know the other was there. Right. Until they were doing a, a, a transceiver, a beacon search. And, and terrifying. Yeah. So the social environment has changed so much. And that changes decision making. And yeah, the climate has changed so much. The snowpack is different every year. I don't want to say it's, a, but the extremes of that are, 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 are more common now. And, and yeah, it's wild. I don't know. <laughs> we have to treat every year like our first year in the range right now. I think so. I think that anybody who is, you know, thinking they wear the expert hat needs to take a step back and, and really look at what's happening. Because like you said, things are just these extremes and these really, which used to be rare events are happening frequently now. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a tricky situation where it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you, nobody's an expert in this modern age. So let's hit something that I think is close to your heart uh, is high altitude effects on decision-making. So this is something that I think you've been studying intensely, uh, the effects of high altitude on the brain and specifically on decision-making. So what are the effects of high altitude on the brain? Oh, well, they make the brain worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, most, <laughs> we know particularly from accounts of high altitude mountaineers, that they're just, their brains change, their thought goes downhill, memory is impacted, attention is surely impacted. I can tell you that from my own experience in high altitude, perhaps even perception is impacted. Certainly decision-making is going to be impacted. And the, the, the physiological reason why I think, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume is why it happens is that, you know, in higher altitude, there's less pressure in the air such that you get less oxygen per breath. So that's not, and uh, uh, that would mean there's less oxygen in the lungs. Why hiking is so hard, much harder at high elevation and any kind of physical activity is. And that's why sleeping is harder too. But, and so as there's less and less oxygen in the air, uh, there's less and less oxygen, well, less, less pressure in the air, there's less oxygen in the lungs that's going to mean there's less oxygen going to the brain. We talked earlier about how the brain uses 20 to 25% of the body's oxygen. And if there's less there, 
certainly the brain's going to change and getting into specifics of how exactly and why, and, and, and we're not there yet. We're still, we're just starting to get that data, but that's what I'm working on at, at altitude right now. Well, that's fascinating. I'm excited to, to learn what you learn once you guys get to the publication phase. But, uh, you know, it, it's clear that altitude does make us worse at decision-making. And I am curious, what do you guys consider? What's the threshold for high altitude, the type of altitude that could affect your brain? It's, it's a good question. Um, like most good questions, it's hard to answer. Like most things involving humans, it's very difficult to answer because it, it depends on where you're starting from. If you live in Seattle, you know, at sea level, and uh, fly to you know Colorado, you can start to certainly see altitude sickness as low as eight, ten, maybe ten thousand feet. Okay, I'll say ten, twelve. I think I'd have to look this up. Airline. Airplane cockpits are pressurized to about 8,000 feet of elevation. That's what I read. I think so. Yeah. It's, I'm just spitting off memory. So we were the same stuff. Whether it's right or wrong, we don't know. Yeah. But uh, that's what I've heard. So that's that's the base of, you know, Snowbird's Kier. It's uh, um, pretty high. Up. And, and, and so I'm assuming that means the brain is pretty okay for a few hours <laughs> at yeah. 8,000. But I, I, I know people who uh, actually ski patrollers who work at 10,000 feet, for example, in New Mexico. And, um, you know, people who drive up from Dallas to go skiing in a day, rally that, <laughs> that road trip across what's that highway 40 and go from basically sea level in Dallas to uh, 8,000 feet in Santa Fe and nine, maybe 10,000 feet in peaks above there are, are um, feeling the symptoms. And so depending where you're coming from, but if you live at, uh, I live in Salt Lake Valley, I live at 4,400 feet, you're going to, your brain's going to be adapted. I can, I probably start feeling elevation at about 13,000 feet myself. And it is going to depend on where you live and where your base elevation is. So it is, it is uh, esoteric and, and does kind of depend on the person, but that's what I've heard somewhere around 8,000 feet could be the threshold. I know as a kid, I went up and got really sick around 8,000 feet in the, in the California Sierra mountains. So, yeah. So interesting that it, it's tough to define those kind of things. That's for sure. So this is kind of the last question. And, and I don't think there's a clinical answer. I'm kind of curious on your opinion. Uh, so high risk behavior in, in human beings. Why do you think humans are so attracted to high risk behaviors, especially in the mountains? Why do we climb high and risk life and limb in avalanche train to ski and ride? Why do you think we do that stuff? Well, the short version of why humans take risks is it can be a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think you and I are both people. I, I've never skied with you, but from what I what I know, and um, we both sought risk in the mountains on skis and otherwise, and 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 because it is fun. And for me, more and more, that's changing to the people I meet along the way, and and uh, the relationships I have, in addition to just the experiences I have from from my mountain partners who I love, and and so that's part of it. The communities we build, and and. And, but there is a, there is a attraction and a pleasure in risk-taking and uh, the experience of, of adrenaline. And, and if we want to break this down to the neurotransmitter of dopamine yes. and uh, it's a rush and it's enjoyable. And as humans and, and as most organisms, we go back and do things that felt great. And I, I think there's some of that in risk-taking. There's also a social component to it where it does elevate status. If you look to, toward mountaineers and 
If you look at, I don't know, the French team that climbed Annapurna, the first 8,000 meter ascent, uh, they went back to their communities with with great accolades and and there's some social signaling value to oh, they were, it, I suppose, as well. They were gods when they came home. Yeah, and, and uh, we all want to be gods, right? And, and even if yeah. we're not, uh, we're going to be, if you can't be the first human to ascend an 8,000 meter peak, because they've all been done, <laughs> that's off the table. <laughs> um that God feeling, I don't know what it's like to be a God or feel like one or what a God is even, but uh, that feeling we get at altitude and at elevation, particularly as the sun is rising or setting and you're clipping on ski, clicking on skis to ski powder. I, I don't know if I can explain why, but it's so obvious that that's worth the risk, which is what makes it difficult to dial back that risk just a little bit at the right time or the, or to not take it at the wrong time, because we're always walking that line. And we know that line exists somewhere, uh, but we're always kind of right there. What can we get away with? And that's such a dangerous place to be as a human because we've all pushed it just a little too far. And, and most of us think we're able to walk away from that. Well, the, you know, the last question is, uh, what's next for you? What's next for you and your life's journey? Well, life's journey starts at tomorrow, and I have no <laughs> idea what tomorrow is going to bring. I have a nine o'clock meeting, and who knows what happens. And But one of the reasons I like to not be in indoor meetings and be outside is is uh, those are the experiences that kind of really motivate me to, to keep going and to uh, keep working on new projects, both and, and stay fit and, and all that. So my next big mountain project, I'm... Um, Heading to Ecuador. Oh, wow. New Year's Eve. Yeah. Heading out down there on New Year's Eve. And I'm going to hopefully collect some more how to data, although most of it's just still kind of testing equipment to see if setups work and to see if these could potentially work as super high, uh, as future high altitude research sites. But of course, we're down there and I'm flying all the way to Ecuador. I might as well uh, bring skis and, and do some skiing and mountaineering. I hope so. Who knows what the snow conditions hold, but I think the glacier, the, the conditions of the mountain will at least be enough to get get some good climbing in on crampons. So, yeah, that's that's my next mountain trip. Well, I wish I wish you all the best with that project and that mountain trip. Uh, Russ, it was great talking to you. I appreciate you. Thank you very, very much for being here. Have a great rest of the day, man. Thanks, Miles. Thank you so much for listening to the Snowbrains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Grand Targi Resort. With over 20 feet of snowfall to date, heading to the Tetons is a must do. We invite you to experience and be part of the Targi vibe at Grand Targi Resort. This episode of the Snowbrains podcast was edited by Jared White, music by Chad Crouch, and I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.